Okay. Okay, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn back to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I was looking at what we have left after this lesson. We basically have one more, and then we'll have the, <clears throat> the closing uh, remarks that Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, makes in uh, chapter 13. I really, in a way, kind of hate to see this study come to a close. I, uh, you know, we've been at it now for almost three years. We actually started it before COVID <laughs> got physically announced. So it's taken a while to get through it, uh, but... I hope and I pray that it has been of some value to you. I know it has been of a value to me. Uh, every time that I go through a book like this, it seems like uh, the Lord, by His grace, uh, allows me to see things more clearly than I saw them in the previous time that I studied through it. So you be in prayer for me as we draw to a close on this, because I don't have a clue uh, where I'm going to go in our Sunday Bible class. I know where I'm at in Sunday worship service, but... Uh, I've already begun to start thinking about what book or whether we're going to go in the Old Testament or uh, whatever, but uh, we'll, as we get closer, please remember me in prayer as we head toward uh, a new study together. We are, we are, uh, we've, I've entitled this lesson this morning, and it's a, it's a, I tried to do it in, in one part, but it's impossible. There's just too much here. I've entitled this section, Established... In the grace of God, established in the grace of God. This will be part one. I think more than anything else, as a child of God, one redeemed by His grace, justified by Christ's accomplished redemption at Calvary, regenerated and converted by God the Holy Spirit in time under the preaching of the gospel, I think one of the hardest things that all of us struggle with is an assurance that we truly are he is. Now, it shouldn't be that way. I, 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 and when I was raised in false religion, just like you, they put a premium on doubt. They made it out like if you were sure for heaven, if you were, had assurance that you had eternal life, you better examine yourself. I can remember that old preacher telling me, if you think you've got life, you better examine yourself. Well, that's not what the Scriptures teach. It's the will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God for His children to have assurance while in this world. Because, listen, if we don't have any assurance, if, if we don't use the means that God's given us to gain assurance, that we are sure and certain for heaven based on Christ's accomplished work of redemption alone. And that's the thing that people cannot get through their head. That's, that's the thing the natural mind cannot and will not embrace. Salvation is in Christ it's by Christ, it's through Christ, from its eternal origins to its application in time through the preaching of the gospel throughout all eternity. It's all of the Lord. Salvation, Jonah got it right. Under inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, what did he say? Salvation is of the Lord. That's our comfort. I, tell you, I, can't, I don't know about you, but I cannot take comfort in anything that I did this week. I, there's, there's nothing. You know, people say, well, don't talk like that. I, you know, we're supposed to be different people. Well, I am a different person in Christ. But I'm still the same old me in Richard. And if you think differently, you're going contrary to what the Word of God teaches. 
If the Apostle Paul made this statement, the good that I would do, I don't, the evil that I don't do, that's exactly what I'd, I'd find myself doing. And he says, I'd find that in my flesh dwells no good thing. If, and, and that's the thing. This was a man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This was a man who was religious, moral, sincere, dedicated, was thought by those in his former religion to be, if anybody was going to heaven, who was? Saul of Tarsus was. And yet everything that he was doing by way of his own power and ability and strength to establish a righteousness of his own by his obedience to the law, what did he find it out to be? Fruit unto death. So our Lord, by His grace, like He does with all His children, He revealed Himself to Paul and in Paul, brought him out of that mess, delivered him from it, set him free from the law of sin and death, according to His own words in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. And yet He finds that in His flesh, a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, a man who was responsible by, and I always think about it like this, under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, He said that He that He outperformed in the preaching of the gospel all the apostles. And yet, what does he say of himself? Find it in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Does that mean that he was an immoral pervert? No. What did he realize? He realizes by nature what still, what still is so prevalent in us. Every moment. And I tell you, if God does not keep us, every one of us are one step away from failure. Horrible failure. And an old pastor told me years ago, and it always stuck with me, there's not one sin imaginable that you can imagine that not any one of us in here could not commit. Not one. I mean, you think about it. That ain't, that ain't what they taught us in false religion. Well, believers might sin, but they won't do that. Really? You tell me some sin you won't do. Well, what do we do? If we, if we, <clears throat> I mean, Paul cried out there at the end of Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And like I've told you in the past, that, that, that phrase, uh, the, the body of this death, had reference to the way Rome used to punish criminals. If you murdered somebody, what would they do? They connected the dead person to you. When you went to bed at night, the dead person was hanging on you. When you woke up the next morning, the dead person was still hanging on you. As you went to do your duties through the day, whatever those duties might be, what is it? That old, that old, that that body of death is still right there, and we're gonna have this thing until we get out of this world. Now that's just the truth. I wish it were not so. Well, no, I don't. There's a reason behind it. If it would, if it would have been for our benefit, for God to totally eradicate sin in our lives, don't you think He would do it when He tells us all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose? So whatever is going on in my old sinful nature, there's a reason why God purposed for it to be there. I don't understand that. I can't, I can't explain that. 
but I cannot deny that. That's just the way it is. And the Apostle Paul, in these verses we'd been looking at for the last several weeks, he had instructed these Hebrew believers, these justified saints, to follow, now listen, to follow, and you've heard this all your life, we ought to follow and imitate people. Yeah, it comes back to that old thing, the best sermon that you can preach is the one that you live. That's not what he's talking about here. He had instructed these Hebrew believers, and he instructed you and me, myself and you included. He instructed us to follow and imitate those who had taught them in the gospel and taught them the doctrines of the gospel. Now, to follow and imitate those, he had instructed them to follow and to imitate those who had continued steadfast, now listen to this, steadfast, and dogmatic in the faith, who had not for any reason ever spoke peace to any sinners on any grounds of peace other than the one found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason they did so, because they were sure and certain that their eternal life, their eternal destiny, rested not on these things that men place false hope in, but in Christ who is our hope. So the grand motivation for for perseverance and determination is is an unchangeable character of what? I'm I'm trying harder. I'm new and improved. No, what is it? He had stated it very clearly. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why, Why Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Who is Jesus Christ? Huh? Who is he to you? I know this much. Peter said this. To you which believe, he is precious. Now why is, he, why is Christ precious to you this morning? I'd say it has something to do with his name. And that's why he didn't just say he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He made it clear who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, which... Remember what the angels told Joseph before, his, at his, before he was born? Thou shalt call his name, what? Jesus. Jehovah our salvation. For he, now listen, for he shall save his people from their sins. But he didn't, wasn't content to say Jesus, just Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. He put this little caveat to it. Jesus Christ, the anointed of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. So our confidence, our eternal security rests on what? Jehovah our Savior, the mediator, sin of God into this world to put away our sins once and for all. So given the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of our God, And given the certainty of our final end, which is glory in heaven, he gives to these people and to you and me exhortations to love and obedience, which prove our faith. Look at verse 9. This is where we want to begin at. He says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Not with meats, which
which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now, as I have said to you over and over and over throughout this study, and as the writer of this epistle has, has continually stated throughout this entire epistle, he sets forth again the, the grand theme of the book of Hebrews. What's the, what's the theme of the book of Hebrews? Here it is, that the heart of the believing, justified sinner be established only one way, be established with grace. You think about that. That the heart, this is, this, this is what, because what was, what, remember what was going on here in, in, among these Hebrew believers? What were they being called back to? They were being called back and encouraged by friend, family, and foe to leave that which was called the way and come back where? Come back to that old covenant. Come back to that old way. That way in which there would listen, here's the thing, and we've stated this repeatedly as we've went through this study. There was never any life in any of that old covenant. It could not give life. It could only point, it was the schoolmaster, Paul said to those at Galatia, it was the schoolmaster, the tutor, to do what? To point us where? Not back to those things. He stated it clearly. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to put away sin. Can't do it. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He had perfected forever them that are set apart by God in the everlasting covenant of grace. Set apart by Christ the Son through His accomplished work of redemption at Calvary. Set apart in time by God the Holy Spirit in regeneration and conversion. So what does this mean for our hearts to be established in grace? Well, it means that we're to be firmly and dogmatically convinced that we're safe, that we're secured for heaven's glory based on the imputed righteousness of Christ, rested in, relied upon by true God-given faith. This is the Apostle John. He says, he that hath the Son. Listen, he that hath the Son. And that, that word hath means to have and to hold in one's hand. It's like, it's like, a, it's, it's like if I pick this glass up, I'm, I have it and I hold it in my hand. He said, he that hath the Son hath life. Not, he's not in the path of life. He's not hoping to get life. He hath it. He possesses it. It's his while in this present world. Isn't that a comfort to you that we're not waiting to get it? (laughs) He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. John shows that his thoughts on this idea of assurance of salvation is the same as the writer of the book of Hebrews. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And knowing that you have eternal life that you might continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. Now how can that be my assurance? To believe, to believe on a Christ I've never seen, that I've never held, I've never heard 
I've never heard Christ's voice other than through this word. So I'm going to trust everything about my, the only part of me that's eternal, my soul, my spirit, my eternal destiny, the one I've never seen, never heard, can't handle, can't embrace physically. How can I do that? Only one way. He's already told us it all through the book of Hebrews chapter 11. What did he tell us? How do the just, how, are, how do the righteous live? What does that mean to you and me? That means we believe, our confidence is this, we believe that due to what Christ did by his very obedience unto death, he alone met every single solitary condition of my salvation in my name and in my nature. And by God's grace, he imputed it to me. He charged it to me. He accounted it to me in such a way that, Bart, it's my righteousness. <laughs> well, you think about it. Our Lord said, except your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom. Well, I know what my personal righteousness is like. How about you? Can you make yours exceed? That of the law, scribes and Pharisees. I know a lot of people are trying. They are. The only way ours can succeed is what? It's got to be perfect. Complete. Whole. As long as our minds and our affections and our wills are firmly established on the fact that we're saved and secure based on this one hope, we can say that our hearts are established with grace. And I'm going to tell you what, every time we get our eyes off Christ and his blood and his righteousness alone, the only thing that's coming our way is failure and futility, period. Now, you think about what he tells us here. This writer of Hebrews, he instructs justified saints, believing sinners, those who've heard the gospel, at least given mental agreement to the gospel. Some of them have truly believed the gospel. He instructs them, and this is to you and me as well, be not carried about by strange, different and strange doctrine. You wouldn't think you'd have to instruct believers to do that. Huh? Obviously, you do. This word translated, I think I told you this last Sunday, but I'll tell you again because we, we're actually on the verse this time. That, that word, the original word translated carry about, it means to carry here and there. It means to be driven. Or I like this, in doubt and hesitation. In other words, in unbelief to be led away now to this opinion and then to that opinion. Here's the same word. Tell me if this doesn't give meaning to this. Don't be carried about. Don't, don't be led hither and thither. Don't be, be driven. Not, not in doubt and uncertainty. Follow one doctrine or another doctrine. Everybody, everybody I know, even believers, are looking for something new. But they 
Solomon, the wisest man ever, said this, there is nothing new under the sun. If somebody tells you they got some new light on something, be very weary. Be very weary. If it doesn't come across, thus saith the Lord, and it's not something that's founded in the Scriptures, I don't care how good it makes me feel, it's not of the Lord. It's not. Here's this verse. Listen, this is when our Lord Jesus Christ was going about healing everybody, and it says the Jews, of the Jews, it said, and they ran through that whole region round about. Listen, and they began to carry about in beds. They began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. In other words, what they do? They carried about. It's the same word. They carried about. So what they do? They told the person on the bed, "Get up and follow us." No, what they do? They put them on a pallet of some sort, and they carried them wherever they were. They were looking for Christ to get a healing. And so they carried him everywhere he went. They were looking everywhere they heard Christ was. They'd pick him up, Kenny, and they'd go again. And it wasn't up to the person. The person, I don't feel right. I don't feel good. I know you, we're going to carry you somewhere where we know Christ is at. We're going to carry you about. And here's the thing. Like those sick people carried wherever these people wanted to carry them, justified sinners are warned to not be carried about. Not be carried about with strange and different doctrines. And I think this is a prominent theme throughout the scriptures, particularly the, 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 the epistles. He wrote, listen, same language to those at Ephesus, that we henceforth, and listen, this kind of nails that being carried about by every wind of doctrine, being carried about by strange and diverse, diverse doctrine, that we henceforth be no more children. Tossed to and fro. And here's the same word again, and carried about. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It's different. This word, the word diverse means different. Strange means what you think it means. It means strange. They're, they're, what he's talking about here are various doctrines that are inconsistent with and foreign to the gospel. I know we've, we've talked about this so much over the last, well, this actually began back in 2006 when this thing, uh, which... Uh, I've, I've had people point out to me, well, it's really, it's not new. It, it, it occurred long ago. But in 2006, when this Christ-made sin thing came onto the uh, scene, and we began to deal with that, and in 2009, when we began to see this thing of the time and the justification come to where if you don't believe in a certain time, in a certain way, at a certain fashion, you don't use all the exact same words, more than likely you're not saved. And my thoughts are, how come all of us were brothers and sisters in Christ from when I first heard the gospel in 1986, 1987? And from 1987 to 2006, which is 19 years, all these people were, we walked arm in arm, believing and teaching the same exact thing that I'm teaching and preaching right now. All of us did. 
No, all of us were in lockstep because, listen, there's only one gospel. I have heard so many men, well-intentioned individuals, try to define what the gospel is, and they, 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 they start drawing from things outside of the gospel to make it the gospel. The gospel, in, in its broken down to its simplest terminology, what is it? It is a declaration of the righteousness of God established by Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's what we're telling sinners today. Anybody that's watching, if you're a sinner, I'm telling you that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world, not the world, all men and women without exception, but the world of His elect. He was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Lord, how do you do that? Not charging their sins unto them. This is a God you're commanded to believe on. Commanded to rest in. A God who does not charge. A God who justifies the ungodly. That's the problem with men by nature. They cannot and they will not see themselves as what they are. What are we? We're ungodly still. Listen to me. If you don't realize this, God, God have mercy on you. The carnal mind, which we still have it, you do realize that, right? The carnal mind, enmity against God. Not subject to the law of God. And listen, it never can be, ever. So why would we try to conform that which can never be conformed to the law of God can never love God, can never embrace God, seek somehow or another to patch that thing up. That's why we have to be what? If any man be in Christ, new creature. We're found in Him, robed in His righteousness, clothed in His righteousness. What are we? We're righteous. We're holy. We're accepted. It just it, it, it astonishes me how, how men will go so far out of the way to try to prove a point so they think they can be right and deny what the Scriptures say conclusively. Listen, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And he, by it, by him offering that more excellent sacrifice, which was it? It was a lamb, Right? His mom and dad, we're going to talk about it in the worship hour this morning. His mom and dad had taught him and Cain God can be approached only one way. How? He has to have satisfaction. They had taught him the wages of sin, what? Death. God, they, they had taught that boy God is, God is going to send the seed of the woman, the Messiah, and he's going to come here and he's going to do what we cannot do. He's going to die the innocent for the guilty going to put away their sin. And so he brings that lamb. No salvation in the lamb. And I'll tell you what, Abel was not looking to the, that lamb. What was he looking? He was looking at what that lamb typified. Because we know that by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And by it, he obtained witness, or he obtained testimony. Whose testimony? Testimony of God. The witness of God. Listen to this. You can't get around this. You're you going to have to do so much word gymnastics to get around this, you're going to deny 
you're going to know not only the English language, but the Greek and Hebrew language. He obtained witness or testimony that he, you hear that? That he was righteous. When? At the cross? No. He was righteous because where was he at? He was in Christ. He was was one of those vessels of mercy prepared before unto glory. And God gave testimony. He didn't have to wait in some... I don't don't know any other way to define it. He didn't go to some holding tank somewhere. Some halfway house for justified sinners until Christ came at Calvary. He obtained witness when he, when he came forward with that lamb. Actually, the, it was before that. Him bringing the lamb gave testimony what? He was righteous already. That didn't make him righteous. He was righteous by virtue of who he was joined to. Which came first? The sinner or the surety? I've thought about that a lot over the last several weeks. For the children being not yet born. You hear that? The children being not yet born. Neither having done any good or any evil. I, by God's word, that lets me know somebody can do some good. He said they, they ain't done good, they ain't done evil. Well, they ain't done nothing. They're, it's a blank slate that the purpose of God according to election might stand. What's that? God's, God's electing choice of one vessel to honor and another vessel to dishonor, And he did it for any good, any good, evil. purpose of God according to election might stand. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob have I loved. Before they'd done any good or evil, Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. You think about this. The warning that he's making here is for you and me to not be tossed to and fro with doctrines that produce uncertainties in our minds. If any of that doctrine that men come up with produces uncertainty and insecurity about who and what you are in Christ by virtue of your oneness with him according to the everlasting covenant of grace, that's the thing you ought to avoid. And see, in direct opposition to this, we're to have our minds and our affections and our wills, he tells us, established with what? With grace. What is grace? It's the certainty of salvation condition on Christ alone, according to God's promise. And see, this grace is in direct opposition to works, meaning salvation condition on the sinner, which those who remained in that old covenant, that's what they were teaching. You got to come back over here. Look, you ain't got a priest. You ain't got a sacrifice. You ain't got an altar. You don't have the law. And he says here, he tells us it's better, it's a good thing for the heart to be established with grace, not with what? With meats. Meats. Those who had who had and were seeking justification in life based on their participation in that old covenant, it hadn't profited. 
By meats, what's he talking about? The apostle attend, intends to identify the old covenant with all its particulars, meat offerings and drink offerings, which he's already told these people in chapter 9 and 10. Those things have never put away sin. Never have. Listen to the apostle Paul. He put it this way. For the kingdom of God is not meat, and it is not drink. What is it? What's the kingdom of God? Here's the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Where? In the Holy Ghost, which is what? It's the Spirit of Christ. So the apostle, again, he sets before them life and death. What he's telling these people is this. Those who can continue to observe any part of that old covenant, what do they do? They exclude themselves from the gospel. And therefore, from any hope of salvation. Look at verse 10 again. Or look at verse 10. He says, For we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat. Which, here we go. What, are they, what were they serving? Serve the tabernacle. And what I find interesting here, he uses the word tabernacle here. What stood at the time he's writing this? It wasn't a tabernacle. What was it? It was the temple. What he says here, look, you and me, and to these people in particular he's writing to, he was telling them that they have an altar and a sacrifice to which those who continue to observe those old covenant principles, they got no right to. There's not two altars. There's not two sacrifices. And there cannot be at the same time. It's either law or it's grace. It's mercy or it's works. And you cannot mix the two together. See, this language has respect to that altar that determined whether or not, because it, you know, the meat was unclean or clean. The things that were offered on the altar, what did they always have to be? They had to be clean. They had to be clean. And that that was unclean, what had to happen to it? They burned it. Where did they burn it? On the altar? No, they carried it where? Outside the camp. And while they were in the wilderness, and when they got into Jerusalem, what did they do? They carried it outside the temple walls and burned it. We have to keep in mind that these Jews who rejected Christ and salvation conditioned on him, what did they treat our Lord Jesus Christ as? An unclean thing. An unholy thing. You think about it. Holiness incarnate among them, and they say of our Lord Jesus Christ, what they call him? A gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. And I'm thankful that they called him this. He, they called him the friend of publicans and sinners. They crucified our Lord Jesus Christ according to verse 12. They took Christ outside the gate. They didn't do it inside, the, inside that old economy. Carried him outside, Kenny. Because all that old economy could do was what? Point to what he was going to do. What he was going to accomplish. Now anybody who would escape destruction, what do they have to do? 
they have to divorce themselves by God's grace from the altar and all its sacrifices. And they have to go outside the camp and be and and by them be themselves looked upon according to what verses nine through thirteen says. If we go outside bearing his reproach, what are they going to think of us? Our Lord said this, Marvel not if the world hates you. If you hate it, if it hates you, know this. It hated me before it hated you. When, when we look around at all our friends and our family members and religious people that we encounter, they look toward the gospel of Christ and what do they consider what we have to say about Christ, his blood and his righteousness. They think it's heresy. They'd consider what I've just told you this morning to be blasphemy. They would think, most people that hear this that are unregenerate, they would think, well, if what he's saying is true, and this is just the way the natural man thinks, because they can only deduce this, they hear this gospel of free, sovereign, eternal grace, not conditioned on the sinner in any way, at any time, with any conditions, ever. The natural mind, what does it say? I don't have to do anything. I ask you again, for those of you that have heard me for any period of time, when you hear me say that, do you think in your mind, well, I just don't have to come back to church next Sunday. I don't have to pick up my Bible anymore. I don't have to be kind to my neighbor anymore. I don't have to seek to love God anymore. That's that the way you think? Is that what that promotes in you? Huh? The answer is absolutely not. But they, that's what they think. And that's how they view it. Look at verse 10. He says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. This verse teaches us something. It teaches us clearly that we can't speak peace to sinners who are either ignorant of or not submitted to the righteousness of Christ as the only ground, hope, or cause of salvation. How do we know that? Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, is that they might be saved. They were natural brethren. They were still worshiping in the temple. They still were participating in all the sacrifices and ceremonies. We're probably kind people. Probably people that you wouldn't mind being around. But he describes them as this way. They're lost. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, by natural blood, that they might be saved. You say, well, he's not saying there's lost. Well, if he's wanting them saved, what's the implications? What's their current condition? They're lost. And he bears testimony. You know, we have the testimony of God that, that we're, we're righteous and holy. He bears testimony against him. What's his testimony? For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of but one thing, the righteousness of God. And since they were ignorant of the righteousness of God, they always do exactly the same thing, go about to establish their own righteousness. Why? because they have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. If Christ did it, why would we try to do it? That word translated right, he says, whereof they have no right, it means they have no power. 
They have no power of choice. They have, listen, here's another translation of it, or meaning of the word. They have no liberty of doing as one pleases. Or I like this one, and this is the one that's probably the most accurate definition of the meaning of this word. They have no physical and mental power. John used the same word in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. So what's he saying here? He's saying that certain people, some people, have a legal right to come to a particular altar, to participate in the blessings of that altar, and that certain people, what have they got? They have no right. Hold your place there in Hebrews 10. Look over at John chapter 1. Words mean everything. Verse 12. Or back up, read verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he, there's the same word, translated right in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. To them gave he power, which means authority, or right, to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. Now, they do believe on his name. People say, well, there it is. I've got, in order to become a son of God, we've got to believe on his name. Yeah, we do believe on his name, but you've got you to keep reading. What's verse 13 tell us? The ones that believe on his name, the only reason they believe on his name is why? Which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but how were they born? They're born of God. Regenerated and converted. You think about this. All who believe God's gospel, who plead Christ's righteousness as their only ground cause of salvation, they have the right to come to this altar. What's the altar? Christ is our altar. Our Lord Jesus Christ said this, no man can come to the Father but by me. So who doesn't have a right to come to this altar? All who are either ignorant of or not submitted to the righteousness of Christ. Uh, We can see why these Jews insisted on retaining all these distinctions of clean and unclean meats. Because here's the thing. If you remove those things, clean and unclean meat, their altar, which was the center of their life, what happens to it? It goes away. It'd be no more use. See, their hearts were established what? On everything that happened in that temple. All those sacrifices, all those rituals. In other words, they were seeking, those Jews by nature, unregenerate Jews, just like friends and family that we have today, they they trust in their church attendance and their morality and some change in their life is a ground or condition of their salvation. These Jews, they believed that salvation was conditioned on the sinner, Truly justified sinners have an altogether different altar. We have an altogether different sacrifice. We have an altogether different priesthood. And our hearts are established with grace. Salvation conditioned on Christ alone. Those who served or remained in the temple, they had no right to eat with them. That is to say they had no right to participate in the benefits of our altar. And it's the same today. 
our altar is Christ. Our hope of eternal life is salvation conditioned on Him alone, His blood and His righteousness alone. And any who believe salvation conditioned on Christ, on the salvation conditioned on the sinner, they have no right, they have no title to claim any of the benefits of the grace of God in Christ. Let me read these two verses and we'll quit. Paul wrote to those at Galatia. In chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Saul of Tarsus was circumcised. Was he a debtor to do the whole law? He was, but how did he fulfill it? Christ said, think not, I came to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. For not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. And then one more, Galatians chapter 6, verse 12 through 16, he wrote, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The reason they wanted them circumcised, if they didn't insist on circumcision, they said salvation was in Christ's blood and His righteousness alone, what would have happened to them? For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom this world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision but a new creature and as many as walk according to this rule. What? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many as walk according to this rule, peace on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. We'll come back next week, and we'll pick up verse 11. You're dismissed, the worshiper. I appreciate your presence.
Not doing a thing. You see all these pop marks on my head. Uh, What's that from? Yeah, I had I had uh, they froze uh, ten off. You know how much they charge each one of those? A lot of money too. Well, she actually charged. She she said she's going to do five. She was going to do these five and one right here. And uh, she I asked her. I said how much? And she said one eighty five. And she got to doing these. And she said. I can't stand these over here, so she did three or four more over here, same hundred eighty five. And they don't take her like no, two seconds. No, I mean, she had promised me they'd be gone by today, but she, she missed. Hey man, how's that? What happened? Here, I'm
daddy just told me that. Oh, man. He just got back. Well, they're, they're in two places at one time. They're standing back there. Nope, no way's there. I, I hate to I hate to quieten everybody down, but we need to get started. What we need to do. Does everybody have a bulletin? Well, take your bulletin and turn to the call to worship. Let's stand together. We'll sing it to the tune of How Firm a Foundation. Okay. 
refuge for sinners the gospel makes known tis found in the merits of jesus alone the weary the tempted the burden of sin are never excluded from entering in this refuge for sinners god's love did ordain in jesus the lamb from eternity slain in christ the redeemer who lived and who died God's law and his justice are now satisfied. Should conscience accuse us as often it may, the blood of our Savior has put sin away. In Jesus our surety the sinner can view a city of refuge and righteousness too. Amen. Be seated. We welcome you to our services this morning. Pray the Lord will bless us today as we seek to worship him together in spirit and in truth. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. If you would take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We want to begin in verse 17 and read down through the end of this chapter before we go to the Lord in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul writes, For Christ sent me not to baptize. What did he send him to do? preach the gospel. You see that? To preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross, that's the preaching out of Christ's death, his accomplished work of redemption at Calvary for his people, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, by him. That's what that means. What we're talking about here is by regeneration conversion. By God the Holy Spirit under the preaching of the gospel. Of him are you in Christ Jesus, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. May the Lord bless read him his word, bless us this morning as we pray we preach his gospel and as we sing together and worship before our God. All if you would lead us in open prayer. Take a red folder, turn to the first page. Glory, glory, I'm forgiven. Glory, glory, I'm forgiven. All my sins are washed away. Christ by his great blood atonement all my sins has put away sin imputed to my Savior when he died upon the tree as the substitute for sinners God will not impute to me glory glory I'm accepted robed in Christ's own Righteousness. I'm a child and heir of heaven, saved by God's almighty grace. He is still obedience to the Father, is imputed now to me. In God's sight, I'm pure and holy. He declares me so to be. Glory, glory, I'll not perish in Christ's hands. I am secure. He who saved me sure will keep me. By God's grace, I shall endure. This is not a vain presumption. I'll just take him at his word. Christ has sworn they shall not perish who believe on me their Lord.
welcome you to our services this morning. Pray the Lord will be pleased uh, to bless us. Every time that I stand up here, I, when I read 1 Corinthians just a moment ago, I mean, you think about what he says of the office that your pastor stands in this morning. God chose not the wise, but the foolishness, the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. I mean, I, that's a heck of a position to be in, <laughs> that, you, that you're one standing up here foolishly. Because, I mean, that's what the world considers what we preach. We preach out a, a, a gospel message of full, free, eternal redemption based exclusively, exclusively on the accomplished work of the God-sent Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. With no conditions in any way, shape, form, or fashion at any time to any degree on the children of God. And I tell you, that's what the Lord uses to set His people free. You have to know, and the only way you can know this, you have to be taught of God. You have to know and you have to understand that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Wasn't making reconciliation possible. Wasn't doing his part so we can do our part. He reconciled the world. Whoever the world is there, he reconciled them to himself. Now, how did he do it? See, that's the thing that religion doesn't tell you. How, did, how can a, a holy God who will by no means clear the guilty, who will not overlook the least of sin and the best of men, hold every soul accountable, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. How can God do that? How can he reconcile those, that world, whoever that world is, to himself? Here it is. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. They never told me that false religion. Religious all my life. All my life. To 30, to in my late 20s. Went to various number of churches. Nobody ever, nobody ever mentioned to me about the imputation of righteousness. Nobody ever told me, not one time, in honesty and sincerity, that God, there's a group somewhere all, that David declared, blessed is the man whose sins forgiven whose iniquities covered him. Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. That's God's word, not mine. He won't charge sin to me. <laughs> if you're a sinner this morning, if you're really a sinner, that's good news. That's all we've got for you. That's good news. I pray the Lord will bless His word. I hope and I pray, you know, when we sing the songs that we sing, I hope you don't just sing them just because you're part of the group and you're standing up to sing a hymn that we sing. Pay attention to the words that we sing. Every, every word that we sing, every scripture that we read, every prayer the men of this church are led to lead us in, and I hope and I pray by God's grace, every word that I seek to preach ever and always exalts the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ directs your minds, your hearts, your understanding away from time and sense, the things of this world, they're all perishing and passing away, and directs them to the only one who is eternal, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember those that are on the prayer list. We have many. I know Pam Austin has not been back with us for a while. Hopefully she's watching again this morning. The, the surgery proved to be a little bit more as far as recovery time is concerned. Continue to pray for Pam. Remember John Villa's wife, Lorena Villa. She's doing well. Uh, 
remember Sherry Tidmore over in Dallas. Uh, others are Frida Womack, continue to remember her in prayer. Uh, remember to pray for these others that are on the prayer list. Also, I wanted to point out to you that this is a, uh, uh, Brenda Kay pointed it out to me. I'd have never even thought about this. This is a five Sunday month. And seeing it's a five-Sunday month, we always have the Lord's Table and Fellowship Meal on the fifth Sunday, which will be the, be the, get on the right month, get in July, which will be the 30th. Well, I'm having surgery on the 24th, and we'll probably be on crutches on the weekend of the 30th. So seeing we will normally have it on the 30th, this month alone, this fifth Sunday month, we're going to have our fellowship meal and our Lord's table. Our five. We're going to have a fifth Sunday service on the fourth Sunday. We're going to have it on the 23rd, on the Sunday before I have surgery on the 24th. So mark your calendar down. On July the 23rd, we will only have one service beginning at 1030 in the morning. Uh, we will observe the Lord's table together at the conclusion of the service, and then we'll have a fellowship meal. Is there a list? There's a list in the back on the, uh, the, the counter back in the back for you to sign up. Uh, what are we going? We're going to do just okay. sandwiches, chips, and dips. So, so there's there. I, I didn't put it in a bulletin. I'll start putting it in a bulletin next week. But I wanted to go ahead and remind you of it this morning. Anything else this morning? Good to have our visitors with us. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Now, now I can do that in a second. Go ahead. Okay. Remember that Bart gets the results of his pet singing on Wednesday. We. We constantly keep you in our prayers, brother. He's always in our thoughts and our prayers. So remember him. Anything else? Oh, Bill Parker asked me to please remember him in prayer. He is he's alone down there in, in Georgia and he <laughs> he he's just he told me, he said, I I, I wish I was not alone. Pray <laughs> he said, Pray for me, brother, and I, I, I encourage you, pray for our brother Bill down in Albany, Georgia. He's doing well. He's doing fine, but uh, he's just uh, the summer's long. Debbie won't be back to the end of the summer. She's up in uh, Ashland. Anything else? Welcome to our visitors. Pray the Lord to bless all of us. Pray that He give us eyes to see, ears to hear, heart, mind, and will to comprehend the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. Let me start this recording. Okay, take your Bible with me this morning. And I actually did go back to First John. <laughs> Took me a while to get there. Turn no, Second John. Excuse me, Second John. Is where we're at. John's second epistle. This message will be the second in this series. I think it will end up being three, maybe four messages. <clears throat> we'll get to the part that I'm really wanting to get to, Lord willing, next Sunday, about if any man abide not in the doctrine of Christ, he hath not God. And that's why, you know, because of those statements it's made beginning in verse 7 through verse 10, that's why I entitled this series Abiding in Christ. This will be Abiding in in Christ, part two. And I actually, this time, I don't have an introduction. We're just going to jump right in. That's what we're going to do this morning, okay? But I do, I guess I do have an introduction. <laughs> I want to remind you again, because you've got to keep these things in mind. I want to remind you again in the beginning of those, to keep those two absolutes. I know you probably remember them for sure. Those two absolutes in mind as we study this book. Here's the first absolute that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Word of God teaches us. 
And I have no apology for these. First of all, those chosen by God the Father in the everlasting covenant of grace, according to Romans chapter 9, according to his purpose of election before the foundation of the world. All those redeemed and justified by Christ's accomplished redemption at Calvary, by Christ's very obedience unto death, his bloody sacrifice on their behalf. All those who in time, under the preaching of God's gospel, the preaching out of this righteousness, which that's what the gospel is, the gospel's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not a sentiment. It's, it's a declaration of a reality. What does it declare? Righteousness. Whose? God's. Not man's. All those regenerated and converted by God the Holy Spirit under the preaching of the gospel. Here's the first absolute. They can never. I know the religious world loses their mind on this. They can never lose this salvation that is freely and graciously bestowed on them. I remember the first time I said that when we were sending out videos over the Internet, and I had a dude get in touch with me from Alabama, lost his mind over that statement. Maybe that, maybe you're sitting there thinking, hearing that statement this morning, and you're going to go out here, you'll walk out that door, and you'll think, that guy said we can do whatever we want to do. Not what I said. And that's what your natural mind hears when you hear this freedom and fullness, because you can't comprehend the grace of God. It's, that's foolishness to you. You mean to tell me that everything this person did that I've never seen, I've never heard with my physical ears, never handled with my hand, this person produced a righteousness for me and charged it to me? And my sins were charged to him in such a way that he became fully accountable for them. And he bore them away like the scapegoat of old perfectly in his body. That's, what you're that's exactly what the Word of God tells us. That's the only good news a sinner can hear. If, if your salvation rests on you in any way, shape, form, or fashion, I'm telling you what, I'm talking to a group of people that are all going to hell, myself included. Here's the second absolute. It's the theme of this epistle. Every elect sinner God saves by his almighty grace will forever abide, continue in, live by, and die in the doctrine of Christ. That's their only hope. And I tell you, you can't make them leave. I said that last Sunday. I'll say it again. You can't, you can't make a child of God leave the gospel of God's grace. It's impossible. It will not happen. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews stated this fact and made this fact abundantly clear. He said, now the just, the righteous, how do they live? Live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. In other words, there's no, those who draw back, there's no hope for. But then he tell, gives us this precious promise. But we are not of them that draw back under perdition. But by God's grace, because I tell you what, you don't, you don't have any faith in and of yourself. You're not of them that draw back under perdition, but to them, we're them that believe, continue to believe, to the salvation of the soul. Why? 
my hope is ever and always. We, we sang it just a minute ago. Glory, glory, I am accepted, robed in Christ's own righteousness. Think about what you sung this morning when you held that little book in your hand and you sang these words. Robed in Christ's own righteousness. I'm a child and heir of heaven, saved by God's almighty grace. Christ, Christ obedience to the Father is imputed, charged. That's what that word reckoned. That's what it's reckoned to be mine. Christ's obedience to the Father is reckoned now to me. It's mine. And here's the result. In God's sight, I'm pure and holy. He declares me so to be. You can't get any better news than that. It's impossible. The Greek word of them that draw back means the timidity of one who stealthily retreats kind of backs away from it, leaves it behind, counts it something of no value. All God's elect, listen, they will never, they will never through timidity stealthily retreat from the gospel of God's free grace. And they will not retreat from the family of God, ever. You think about this, that's what the truth that this elder John, the Apostle John, who was now almost 100 years old, he addressed this lady and this, her children. He, he said this to her. Now, let me just read this to you real quick, and we'll pick up verse 4. He said, The elder unto the elect lady and to her children, whom I love, how does he love them? In the truth. And not I only, but all those who have known the truth. What? They love her too. And they love her children who believe the gospel. Why? For the truth's sake. You see that? Which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be to you. Mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and through love. Through persecution both within and without. Through good times and bad times. This elect lady and her children, you know what they did? They abode in the truth. They continued in it. And I, I don't think you can overstate that truth enough, seeing that the opposite of abiding in the truth, if you don't abide in the truth, reveals that one where you abide. You're abiding in death. Listen to this. They went out from us to make manifest they were not part of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But thank God for this next verse. But you have an unction from the Holy Ghost, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. And not only do we know the truth, he says this, and you know that no lie is of the truth. Now look at verse 4. 2 John verse 4. He said, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Listen to Young's little translation of this verse. He says, I rejoiced exceedingly that I have found of thy children walking in truth even as a command we did receive from the Father. 
I spent a lot of time looking at this week for this command. <laughs> he said, John says, we receive this command from the Father. Whatever this commandment is. Now, I know a lot of people, they get hung up and they get in First and Second John, and when they think about the commandments, the first thing every natural mind runs to when we think about the commandments, which ones do we think about? The Ten Commandments. Not the commandments we're talking about here. Not at all. You think about this. This, this great apostle, John, who, like I told you last week, he's now about 100 years old. He's been on the Isle of Patmos, and now he's off the Isle of Patmos. <clears throat> and he's the elder of the church, and he's written First John, and now he's writing a second letter. And this great apostle of God who had seen so much and been through so much, who had actually handled the Lord of glory from First John, tells us. He says, I rejoiced greatly that I found this elect woman, this, this called out sinner woman, children doing what? Walking in the truth. As we have received commandment of the Father. You know, th this commandment from the Father, it has to do with his command for all his elect to do one thing only. Believe on him whom God hath sent. Listen to you. To believe on the one who, listen, who is eternal life. See, they convinced me eternal life is something out yonder. Eternal life is, you know what etern eternal life is? A person, it's Christ. That's why I mean we have to be found in Christ. Listen to you. This is our Lord Jesus cried and said, He that believes on me, believeth not on me, but he believes on him that sent me. Now, what, what he believes on the Father that did what? Sent the Son. What did he send the Son for? Anybody got to got to answer that? Why did, why did he send the Son? Our Lord in his high priestly prayer tells us why he sent the, sent the Son. This is life eternal. That they might believe on thee whom God hath. I believe, well, I, it's one of them old age things. Let me read it to you. I want to get it right. He says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to who? To as many as thou gave him. How many? To as many as. Not all men and women without exception. Giving life to the ones that the Father gave him. But then he goes on. This is life eternal that they might know thee. Know who? The Father. And know him in what respect? The only true God that will by no means clear the guilty, who has revealed himself only one way as a just God and a Savior. And, no, not just the Father, but who else do we know? And that word know is a Jewish idiom for a relationship between a husband and a wife that results in a child. That's what that word know means. So it means love. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay? So he says that you might love the only true God and love who else? Jesus Christ whom thou hast sinned. So what's eternal life? To know the Father and know the Son. And so he says to them, now, now think about this. He, he, he said, believeth on me, but on him that sent me. Sent him wild to save his people from their sins. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Remember what he said to Philip? Philip said, show us the Father. 
He said, Philip, if I've been with you so long, if you've seen me, who have you seen? You've seen the Father. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. You might write that. This is John 12, verses 44 through 50. But when I, when I read this thing of darkness and light, I always think about our Lord Jesus Christ with the, uh, Nicodemus. When he told him, he said, this is a condemnation that light is come into the world. And what did he say? Who did he say is light? Not the law. Not moral fortitude and obedience. What's the light? Christ. I'm not the light. Christ is the light. And he said, men love darkness more than they love the light. Context, context, context. Who was he talking to? Nicodemus. What was Nicodemus? An immoral, ungodly pervert. No, he was not. What was he? He was a religious, moral, sincere, dedicated religious person. Nobody else was there. No prostitutes, no tax collectors, no gathering demoniacs. A religious person. And he says to them, that man, they love darkness. What kind of darkness did Nicodemus like? Remember, he sought our Lord by night because he was fearful if he was known what would happen to him. He'd be kicked out of the synagogue. He'd lose his way that he'd been striving for. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe not, I shall not judge him. For I came not to judge the world. What did Christ come to do? He came to save it. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words which I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment. And here's the commandment we're talking He gave me a commandment. He told that, told that elect woman that as we have received commandment from the Father. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, and second person of the Trinity. He says, the Father gave me, He sent me, and He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know, listen to this, I know that His commandment, I, I, Ob, I've read this verse. I've read John hundreds of times in my lifetime. Never, never, never read. This never keyed in my mind. I know that His commandment is everlasting life. He that hath the Son hath life. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. What I speak? I speak of the commandment of the Father, which is eternal life. How? Through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You keep in mind how, when you think about it, Paul answered that Philippian jailer. Remember the Philippian jailer saw the jail cells open, woke up out of his sleep, saw the jail cells open, and he ran inside, and he looked around, and he pulled his sword, he was about to kill himself, and they looked at him, and they said, do yourself no harm. Paul said, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. Everybody's right here. And he looked at him, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And everybody says, look at there. He wants salvation. A lot of, a lot of problems with the way he asked that. Because here's the biggest problem. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? 
That's why, that's why I, I, I coined the phrase probably three decades ago, every religion that tells us do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that, what is it? It's do-do religion is what it is. It's not what must I do to be saved. That's a good question. But it had a wrong thought behind it. But they answered his question. What did they tell him? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. I'd have you to notice here what this calls this elder apostle to rejoice exceedingly. What did it? Well, I'll tell you what. It wasn't earthly achievements by these children by these elect sinners' children. While there ain't anything wrong with you or I being proud or congratulating our children or our grandchildren or our friends and our families for their earthly achievement, what filled John's heart with joy? What did it? He said, I found some of her children walking in the truth. You think about this. John's heart was filled with exceeding joy because he found some of those children of this woman believe in the gospel. That original word translated walking means to make one's way, to progress, to make due use of opportunities. And like I told you last time, the word translated the truth means what? The truth is taught in the Christian religion respecting God and all the executions of his purposes through Jesus Christ. That's what the truth is. His rejoicing was, you know what? He found some of her children making their way and progressing in the truth of salvation full and free through Christ's accomplished work of redemption. I, the greatest joy that I have ever had as a pastor is to see young men and women, and, and what's amazed me and a lot of you don't know all of it because when we started broadcasting out there on, on Sermon Audio and then later YouTube and Facebook Live, how many people that, that have heard us through the years over the Internet that are older people in their 70s and 80s spent all their lives in religion, the Lord was pleased to reveal himself to them. That's what gives you and I great joy, is it not? To see people set free from the law of sin and death. To see men and women brought out of religious darkness and brought to see Christ is the Lord their righteousness. And when our Lord Jesus Christ told those Jews who had believed on Him, what did He tell them? He says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. There's that truth again. You'll know the execution of God's purposes of salvation through Christ. You'll know the truth. And that truth, it sets you free. He went again and he said, If the Son, therefore, the only one who can set you free, if the Son, therefore, make you free, how free are you? You're free indeed. Completely. But I think one of the things that I discovered in studying this this week that just really amazed me when he says that I found of thy children walking in the truth, the way he stated that and the way it's written in the original language doesn't mean that he found all of her children believers. He found some of them believers. Some of them believe in the gospel. I like what John Gill wrote in his commentary, and this is true for you and I too as uh, we're parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles. He said this of those words, not all but some of them. For good parents have not always good children. 
or at least not all of them. Adam had a cane. Abraham had an Ishmael. Isaac had an Esau. God is pleased to show his discriminating grace in tribes and families by taking some and leaving others. It is a great mystery when any are called by God's grace. And instead of the fathers, I'm going to get to that in just a minute, instead of the fathers, are the children called. And this was the case of some of this ch- these children of this elect lady. See, what this verse teaches me is that this elect lady who knew the truth, who walked in the truth, and lo- was loved by others who walked in the truth, you know what she did? She diligently used all the means available to her to teach her children the truth. You hear that? Teach her children the truth. Trust him. That God would show mercy and grace to them according to His sovereign will and good pleasure. And the thing that got me, that, you know, there's no mention, you know, He mentions the elect woman, the elect lady. He do not mention no elect man. He doesn't mention her husband. He mentions her children, but not her husband. What does that mean? It means she understood her responsibility as the believing parent, one who knew the truth concerning those children who had been committed into her watch care. The greatest responsibility you and I have as human beings on this planet is our children and our grandchildren. That's our responsibility. I know I can't save my boys. I can't save my granddaughters. But what I can do, I can use the means God's given me to keep my boys, which we did, and keep my, my granddaughter under the gospel of God's grace. You know that Adam and Eve, what did they do? They taught their boys. What did they teach their boys? They taught both their sons, committed to their watch care, about how God redeemed them and how he saved them by his grace and by his mercy. How do we know that? How do we know that's the case? When they're grown men and they go out to worship on their own because every, every husband, every father was the head of the household and in the head of the household, every father before the priesthood was established, every father served as a priest in his own household. And as the priest of his household who was raised with his brother Cain and had heard the same things Mom and dad, you, you don't think Adam and Eve taught them boys about what, what they had experienced out there in that garden? About how they trembled when they heard the voice of God? And how God removed those fig leaves of self-righteousness and He killed an innocent victim and He made for them clothes of skin and covered their nakedness, forgave and put away their sin? Abel and Cain heard that. And by faith, Abel offered unto God, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Oh, Cain came to worship. How'd he come? With the works of his hands. And tragically, that's about what 99.9% of people in religion are doing today. They're coming with the works of their hand. They're firmly standing on that question that Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? You know, the Jews looked at our Lord Jesus Christ and they said, what can we work that we might work the works of God? 
What was his response? This is the work of God. What's the work of God? Here it is for the sinner. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom God hath sent. That, that, that's God's work in my heart. I could, I could not believe. I have no faith in and of myself. I have no ability. To, yeah, I mean, just think about what the scriptures say. No man can come except it were given unto him of the Father. All that the Father giveth me, what? They shall come unto me. And him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. This this is so important to you and me as children. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that with all my heart. Don't you? Whoever. And it means all. Whoever means all who call. How? See, we we hear that verse. But nobody goes on. They stop. Get everybody to call on the name of the Lord. And everybody in my generation has. But Paul goes on. How then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Somebody got to tell you about this God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sinned? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed thy report? So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. And see, we see the same truth set forth in the way Timothy's grandmother and mother taught him the truth from their ch- his childhood. Listen to this. Paul said to this young preacher, Timothy, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which first dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that the same one that dwelt and indwelt in your grandmother and your mother, you know what? He says, I'm persuaded that it's in you also. And into this same mom and grandma, he says to, to Timothy, he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. For me to learn something, what's somebody got to do? I got to teach me. He said, Continue in what you've learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Who'd he learn them from? Here we go. And that from a child. Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Who made known the Holy Scriptures to him? Lois and Eunice, his grandmother and his mother, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen to me. While we have absolutely no guarantee that our children or our grandchildren our nieces and our nephews, though taught by us the truth of the gospel at home, that's our responsibility. We have Grace Baptist Church. We've been together for 36, I think, coming up on 37 years together. Seen a lot of kids grow up in this church with us, all of us together. But listen, it's not your responsibility as a parent or grandparent just to bring them here on Sundays. What are we to do? We're to teach and instruct our children. 
We're to use the means God's given us. We're to use the power and authority that we have as parents to enforce that they stay where. I'm not my... I would, my boys will tell you that. I'm friends with my boys now. But my boys are 42 and 39. Isn't that right? I was not my boys' friends. I wasn't their buddy. I wasn't their pal. I wasn't their confidant. Their mama was their confidant. I was their teacher, and she was too. I was their instructor while in this life. I was their guide, and they had no rights. They didn't like it. They bucked against it, but it didn't change what they were going to do. They were going to be under the gospel. Every time that it was preached, they were, unless they were sick or they were at their grandparents' house on vacation or something, they were always under it. But even though I don't have any guarantee that doing that saved my boys, and I don't. I don't think it was because of me and Pam's efforts to, to do all that that saved them. I do know this much. The only way my children, your children, my grandchildren, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your friends, your family, the only way they're going to come to know the gospel, what do they got to do? They got to hear the gospel. There are no accidents in this life. Every person that ever crosses your path, you are one of two things as one who believes the gospel. You are a savor of life unto life or a savor of death unto death to them. Because when they've heard the truth, they are without excuse. All of them. That's why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in the call to worship. How does God, what did he choose to use to save sinners? You're not going to be out on the lake or out on the deer stand and look up at the sun or the stars and come to know the Lord. That's not scriptural. Faith comes how? What is God? See, that's the thing. You said, well, you're saying that God can't save people anyway. I used to have one guy I greatly respected at one point in time. He said, God can save sinners any way he wants to, at any time he wants to, with any means he wants to. He, he could, but God tells us of himself that what does he not do? I'm the Lord God. I change not. And if he's written down in this book that he's chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, how does he call sinners to salvation? If you don't agree with that, prove it to me from this book. Because if, if, if that's the case, if God doesn't use means to call his sheep out, let's just close grace up and turn it into a bar and go about our way. And let's just hope and pray that at some point in time, God's elect, they'll be out on the lake or they'll be sitting in a bar somewhere or doing some other ungodly thing, whatever men might call ungodly, and then all of a sudden the light will come on. That's not the way it works. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, My sheep, well, they, they hear my voice. Well, they, they hear. That means, that means an audible sound. They hear with an ear. And they come unto me and I give unto them eternal life. You say, well, what are you saying, preacher? This is what I'm saying. If you or your spouse believe the gospel, seriously consider your responsibility to instruct and guide those children in the truth of the gospel. Your responsibility. Emphasizing to them what's the most important thing to you as their mom or dad. And how do you do that? By your words concerning this gospel and by the great value you put on this gospel. If you're a believing parent, 
and your spouse doesn't believe the gospel. You know what? That leaves you without excuse? No, you're without excuse as far as your responsibility to do what? This mother, what did she do with her children? Huh? She taught them the truth. She did. If as grandparents we have unbelieving sons and daughters, and we've been blessed with grandchildren by them and their spouses, like Timothy's grandmother Lois, it's our responsibility to teach and instruct them in the truths of redemption through the accomplished redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility, not Richard Warmack is the Pastor Grace Baptist Church's responsibility alone. You've got them seven days a week. I get to speak to your family two hours every Sunday. Who has the greater responsibility? Who has the greater access? Who has the greater ability to show them how important, how invaluable this is to you? Here's the thing. When we've done everything we can do, using all the means at our disposal to keep our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews, and as the Lord presents opportunities for us to give an answer to every man that asks us the reason of the hope that lies in us with meekness and with fear, when we've done everything we can do, what do we have to do? We have to trust that God, according to his sovereign will and purpose, will be pleased to use his means to cause his sheep to hear his voice and not question me. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment. That as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. These verses are a reference to what John had taught in 1 John. He said this in 1 John, this is actually Christ's words in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, because you do what? You love one another. John, in the previous epistle, he said this, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past. Not passing, the darkness is past. True light now shines. He that saith he's in the light hates his brother. Hates his brother is in darkness even unto now. He that loveth his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. He continued, he said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you, we know we have passed from death unto life. How do we know? Because we love the brethren. One more, beloved, let us love one another, for God is love, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. See, John was instructing this elect lady concerning one important truth, true brotherly love. 
That is to say, true love and loyalty to who? To these people who know the truth, who walk in the truth, believe the truth. And see, here's the thing. The only way we can love them that are of the truth, we have to be in the truth ourselves. And they themselves have to be in the truth. And there are a lot of ways that brotherly love expresses itself, but John is referring specifically here to that expression of love that takes sides with God's people against this entire world, not compromising his truth. And this brotherly love, folks, it's the fruit and it's the effect of our being born of God. This love of the brethren is it's not the same as love to our neighbor, which, listen, it's our responsibility to love all men and women, is it not? Remember, they asked our Lord one time, who's our neighbor? He told them, our neighbor's who? It's everybody. Well, listen, listen to this. He said this, love your neighbor as yourself. That's our responsibility. That should be our goal. But if we're honest, what do we find about ourselves and our love to our neighbor? Even people who are closely related to us, friends to us, that love often falls short, does it not? This brotherly love is something a natural man doesn't have in any degree. He can't love those that are born of God. This brotherly love, you think about it, it's perfectly consistent with our love to our neighbor, but it won't speak peace to our neighbor based on anything other than the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His only ground, hope, or cause of salvation. Let me close with this. Would love for your neighbor, you think about it, love your neighbor as yourself, would love for your neighbor promote and encourage our neighbor to expect salvation based on something that God's word calls idolatry and whoredom? Would that be loving your neighbor? So true love, you know what it won't do? It will not promote and it will not encourage our neighbors to expect salvation based on the de- those deeds that are evil, that the word of God calls fruit unto death, and it would not encourage our neighbor to expect salvation based on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, His blood, and His righteousness. So how can we know we've passed from life into death? We love the brethren. And what will we not do? We will not speak peace to this world. And I tell you, where this world is, this love is absent, there's no, been no passing from death into life. This is that love which the Apostle John encourages in God's people. That we abide in the truth firmly convinced that God's faithful to fulfill his promise of certain salvation based on the righteousness of Christ, and that God's faithful also to carry out his threat of certain destruction to any who approach him any other way other than through the Son. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. I appreciate your presence this morning. Lord bless you. Keep you till we see you next Lord's Day. Donald, if you would, dismiss us, please.